This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new premium episode of Sitting Down with Dr. Dan. I'm here with our awesome audio engineer and terrific dad, Phil, to answer your listener questions. We appreciate you sending us your questions every month by DMing us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and also emailing us. We read everyone. We love getting them. And we've got some great ones for today. What's up, Phil? How's it going, Dr. Dan? Going well. Going well. All true, by the way. We love getting these questions and uh, multiple channels for people to get these questions to us. And it's nice to see people are figuring out how to get these questions in. So we'd love to hear from everybody. So keep them coming. And with that said, why don't we dive into our first question, uh, which is a question coming from email from Deborah. And Deborah asks, what are the signs of an eating disorder in a young tween or teen girl? That is a really important question. Um, we know that there are lots of pressures on teens and tweens, females in particular, but also males these days through social media, um, how your body's supposed to look, what uh, the current fashion is and the bodies that are shown uh, and people talking a lot about their body and their dieting. We also know in some risk factors also includes um, athletes and um, sport sports uh, uniforms, body type um, body types that are um, aspired to lots of exercising and working out. And in addition, we need to be aware of common traits that can lead to eating disordered thinking and behavior, which include, which include perfectionistic thinking, uh, high levels of anxiety, some obsessive compulsive tendencies, depression, and addictive behavior. A lot of times tweens do struggle with this fear of weight gain and distress around their body image because it is a time when their bodies are changing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's unsettling for, for many when these changes are happening in ways that you don't really understand and can't really control. So in terms of actual behaviors of things to look for, skipping meals and making excuses about uh, not eating and then potentially eating in secret, an ex, uh, excessive focus on food or healthy eating. And as you'll hear as I'm, as I'm listing some of these, there is a fine line with all of this, um, mm -hmm. all of this behavior. And you really are trying to look at the overall pattern to see if there is a concern. Um, persistent worry or complaining about being 
fat or overweight, constantly checking your body, um, repeatedly eating large amounts of sweets or high-fat foods. Another thing to look for is regularly going to the bathroom after eating if people are trying to get rid of the food. Mm -hmm. um, eating more than is considered normal for a meal or a snack. And also expressing depression, shame, disgust, or guilt about your eating habits. So again, this isn't, it often is not a black or white thing. Sometimes it will be in your face and you will be really concerned about some of the um, behaviors or weight loss or weight gain that you're seeing. Definitely speak to a pediatrician or family practitioner if you're having these concerns to get a read um, from he or she about whether this is something that you might want to take a look at or have a professional talk to your child in a um, nurturing, educational, informative way as opposed to a, um, a punitive way, which can sometimes happen and, and not be very helpful. Yeah, I think that all makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as, as you know, Dr. Dan, I have two teenage daughters, mm -hmm. um, one 14, one soon to be 13. And yeah, it's eating disorders are so very prevalent. And with social media mm -hmm. being so omnipresent and, and this sort of image conscious kind of culture that is, is in orbit around social media, we at home try to again look for some of those cues and uh, in our area in particular it's it's you know it's pretty um common eating disorders and when we notice certain behaviors we try to see if there's early early signs that it could take a turn somewhere knowing mm -hmm. that things are so volatile at this age as well and just try to address it kind of in the moment, not in mm -hmm. a way that draws a ton of focus, but in a way that sort of opens a dialogue. And yeah. so if they are having, say, concerns about what they're eating and how it's going to reflect on their, on their outward appearance, it starts that dialogue, it gets them talking about it, and then I think it kind of decreases that internalization, I think, that is another mm -hmm. contributor, because mm -hmm. I've seen my daughter looking at the calories on the, on the pack of something she's about to eat. Oh, for a sure. A 12-year-old daughter. Right. And to me, that's a sign right there that if, if she's already thinking about how many calories are in there, and she's an active, active kid, mm -hmm. but she's, you know, her body type is different as is, you know, everyone's body type mm -hmm. is different. And um, so I take that as the opportunity to kind of pause her, you know, after, you know, I don't, jump on her and say, what are you doing? Why are you reading that? And I say, yeah. you know, I, I noticed you were checking out the, how many calories are in that. And then, then we kind of kick off a conversation and little things like that continue to kind of happen here or there where I see her kind of start to question that. And, but it's just, again, keeping that open dialogue about mm -hmm. it, uh, mm -hmm. letting her therapist know that this is something, you know, behavior that we've noticed and just put on your radar because it's good to have sort of that team awareness as well, because certain things might be expressed directly to you or not. Certain things might be directly expressed to the counselor or not. And so I think if everyone is aware mm -hmm. of just what's happening in, in your child's life with respect to body image and with respect to eating and all of that, I think that also is going to be very helpful in making sure that it doesn't become just a, a teenage kind of concern 
developing into a more serious eating disorder. And I really like your approach of of addressing it as you see some of these behaviors in a way that is more um, conversational. Yeah. Ra- you know, try to keep the threat down and the intensity yeah. down because these are not, you know, these aren't easy conversations to have. Yeah. And um, it's easy to, for a child to feel shame around this stuff. Just what I, was I, about to say. I, I like the idea of of hitting it straight on and talking to kids about health, talking to them about that you're aware of the reality of social media and the pressures they're facing and the body types that are shown and, um, and what's not all always, what's not often shown is what goes into producing that body type, which can not always, but can be very unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And I know in our family, um, my wife has always, with our two girls, um, always been really um, good about the focus on health and talk about yes. like what's what's healthy, what's a healthy body, what's a healthy diet, what's a healthy amount of exercise. And instead of taking the approach of um, like focusing on what's not healthy is focusing on what's healthy and to have that be the context. So I think there's a there's a few ways to go about this. And what we're saying is, like this question um, coming from Deborah is not to not to ignore it, not to be afraid to talk about it, and it's it's just really important to address. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, on to the next question. Question number two is from a direct message. If my daughter is afraid of dogs, should we consider getting a puppy? I love that. Um, potentially yes. So, uh, that has been able to be a remedy, um, for many families that I know when a child is very much a part of the process. And so I'm going to talk about this in a few ways. So first big picture is looking at how do you help people who are afraid of dogs or any other fear? It's often through what's called exposure therapy or exposure work. It doesn't have to be in therapy. You can do it as parents. And what exposure Mm -hmm. is, is you decide what that feared stimulus is to use the fancy technology, in this case, dog, and find ways to break down that fear. So you could do one thing at a time to habituate or get used to that fear. So for example, a fear of dogs, you might start with looking at a book of dogs, looking at pictures on the internet of dogs, Mm -hmm. something that's really benign and start to see some cute dogs and, and start to develop like, Oh, these things aren't that bad. And you know, I'm safe because I'm just looking at them on a page or screen. And I will jump in just to say, this is a positive side of social media because there is no lack of cute pet videos and pictures <laughs> on social media. There you, yes, absolutely. Yes. Oh my God, how many, yeah, in all of our homes, there's people we're scrolling and going, oh, look how cute these animals are, right? Yeah, good call. A positive use of social media, which we don't always, we don't talk about that it in that way all that much on, um, on our shows. So yes, scrolling, going to these cute sites. Um, then if you're thinking about having your child get more comfortable. And again, this is only so if you don't need, if you're, if you're not even going to, if you're not going to buy a dog or a puppy, we're going to get to the actual heart of this. Mm-hmm. Um, then going to parks where the dogs are far away and you're behind a fence or you're in the car or going to pet stores where all the, the dogs are in their cages and you slowly work your way up to a child going from being scared to being bored 
because the research has shown if you habituate and it's like, ah, oh, this is no big deal. You're not, you can't be afraid and bored of something at the same time. Right. And so you can work your way all the way up to going to friends' houses, relatives' houses where the dog is in the backyard and your child's inside. And then eventually your child is able to pet a dog that they feel comfortable with. Now, that is one way of training, um, whether you're going to get a puppy or not. That being said, if you have a child who want, who is able to go on this process with you yes. and look at the kind of puppies that they're, that they like, or go to the, um, go to, uh, the rescue, the rescue organizations and they have tons of cute dogs in those places and start to get more used to the idea of having one of his or her own or, you know, a family that is exposure therapy, you know, to the to the hilt basically you're basically doing it with an actual object which is loving and caring and going to um lick her face and love her yeah absolutely i think you i mean you said it perfectly we're dog people in our household uh but i can certainly speak to the process of involving your kids in finding i won't say choosing but Finding that newest addition, that newest family member really just creates for overall a fantastic bonding experience for the family, mm-hmm. but also just a very special bonding experience for your child mm-hmm. and this, this new addition. So mm-hmm. I think if you, are, <laughs> if you want to get the puppy, you know, that's also kind of a self, you know, self-motivation there because... Who doesn't want to get a puppy? <laughs> uh, I think the advice that Dr. Dan laid out is 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 perfect. When we when we got our first family dog, um, they had a requirement the at a rescue place. They had a requirement that every family member, no matter what age, had to be there mm-hmm. for the whole process, which yeah. was very difficult in regular modern day life with. <laughs> three kids and work and all of that stuff. And the other thing, the stress of, because if you didn't get there right when you saw that cute dog on the internet, you know, there was 10 people in front of Of you who was going to get that puppy. So, or that dog. So when we went with our family of five, when our kids were young, it turned out the, the dog, we, the the few dogs we went for were gone by the time I got off work and we got there. Um, However, we stumbled upon a new one, our beloved Quincy, who, just happened to be there. I don't know if he just didn't make the make the internet or he just showed up, but all of our kids were there for that initial bonding experience and and he was our dog for, you know, for 12 plus yeah. years or more and um it just that I you just made me think about that that bonding experience right at the beginning was so powerful with all yeah. of our young kids at the time. Yeah. And I think whether or not you are our listener is, is considering bringing a pet into bringing a dog into the family. I still think that it's just so worthwhile to be able to help your child work through, you know, work through that fear because, you know, there's dogs all over and they might later in life have a, have a good friend or, or a, you know, a romantic partner that has a dog. And, Mm -hmm. and for those of us with dogs, we know that they're a big part of our life and, and those people that we have in our life, we want them to be able to you know, accept that pet, enjoy that pet. And if they're going to be a romantic partner, then of course that becomes important as well because it's, you know, me and the dog. <laughs> yes. Great. Love talking about dogs. I could talk about dogs all day. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. 
Question number three. This is another one from email from R. Do you think cursing is really that bad for my kids to hear? <laughs> that's actually, it's, uh, it's such a, such a poignant question because yeah. there's a, such a debate about this. Um, and there are kids that grow up with parents that never curse in front of them. And there are par- kids that grow up with parents that curse constantly. Yeah. Um, and there's everything in between. So, you know, I, I think I've changed over time. I, I think as I was a, as a young parent and um, a, a parent psychologist and coach in the early years, I think I was more rigid about that it's just being completely inappropriate. Right. And then as I've gotten older and our kids have got older and other families I worked with and know, and I could see the nuances of, you know, there's some parents that it's kind of part of their personality. They just cuss. They're, they're real. And there are some that have, I, I guess it's about boundaries. It's like, what do you tell your kids about cussing? And are they allowed to do yeah. it? You yeah. know, it's like, to me, it's what's the discussion about it? Like, is it something that they can do anytime they want? And, you know, when that happens, kids often get in trouble when they're cussing at school or cussing right. and on sports fields when they're young. Or <laughs> is it a, hey, this is an adult thing. And when you get older, there's lots of other things that you'll be able to do as well. Yeah. And this is how I talk. So I'm, I'm in the gray land. I think it, I think it really depends on the family. I want to say how the cussing is used. Is it used just as, um, to enhance some of the language? Is it used in an angry or punitive, um, or scary way? Mm -hmm. Um, what do you say cussing means? You know, what, how do you talk about that with your kids? So I think it's more about the nuances than a black and white. Yes or no. I think so too. I agree a hundred percent. When the kids were younger, we were way conservative about it. Mm -hmm. Um, in the sense that, you know, you don't want to hear a, you don't want to hear a six year old going out there and and dropping F bombs. Right. That's right. That's not exactly what you want to see (laughs) happening (laughs) and they will emulate, right. What they hear at home. Um, but you know, as they got older and we had dialogue with them about cursing and, our view on it is that it's something that can be used to enhance your, your language. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not something that you necessarily want every other word out of your mouth to be a curse because let's face it in society, people are going to look at a person that is cursing nonstop and probably think they're cursing so much because they don't have better words to choose from to express what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. still kind of, of of this conservative mindset that it doesn't have to be a regular part of your, your vernacular, but a curse or two may come out or you might use it to emphasize something you're saying or to, uh, or you're watching a movie and, and you say, Oh, S, you know, I, and, yep. and I think again, it's one, it's, I think it's situational. Mm-hmm. Do I don't, you know, think cursing should be a substitute for, you know, intelligent discourse, but three, it can be colorful when in the right context. Mm-hmm. And then four, know your audience, know the people that you're totally. this cursing going to make someone else uncomfortable, which of course you don't 
don't want to do. So again, I'm in the gray area as well. I think there's appropriate times for it. And I think there's times where maybe leave the, uh, leave the F-bombs at home. <laughs> yeah. And it's such a fascinating topic because they're just words. As our kid, we'd have these dialogues with our kids too. Like, like the difference between truck and the F-bomb is one letter, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> and pit or shit is one, is yeah. one, it's one letter. So it's like, or maybe those are two letters, but you know what I'm talking about, right? So it's like, it's helping our kids understand, I think, is I like talking about this stuff with them. It's like, yeah. okay, yes, you're right. These are just words, but for whatever reason, they have a different meaning. And mm -hmm. to some people, they are offensive. To others, mm -hmm. they are not. And also, I just, we have to acknowledge, like, I remember the first time maybe I cussed in middle school and dropped an F-bomb or did my middle finger. Like, there's something so empowering about that. I don't know why it's such a powerful <laughs> thing. It's like a rite of passage that you, like, as a kid, that you get to, like, yeah. drop one of these things. So <laughs> I just think we have to be measured with, yeah. uh, as you're saying, like, measured with our response. And, like, everything we talk about on the show these are conversations to have, have with your kids and there doesn't have to be black or right. You don't have to be right. It's, it's, I find this engaging in these dialogues about language and about, well, what does it mean and why is it yeah. offenses and why should you, and why shouldn't you, or where should you, and where shouldn't you? These are the conversations that help kids grow and they help you connect and actually yes. gain your child's respect by having a dialogue as opposed to just, you can't do that or that's right. not okay. It's like, let's talk about it. Right. I think it gains that respect and I think it also builds trust. You know, mm -hmm. if, 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 you know, mom and dad are, are talking about this subject with me, then I can, and I always thought it was kind of controversial or whatnot, then I feel like I can perhaps talk about other things. And at the end of the day, when you send your kids off to school, they're going to hear pretty much every curse word under the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know yes. in elementary school, it started a little bit in the later grades, yes. but I, I got frequent reports from my daughters coming home on the bus and talking about the boys were typically the ones <laughs> that had the more colorful vocabulary, which is kind of accurate to my own memory of it as well. <laughs> as well. So I, again, I think there's no black or white. It's a great area to discuss with your kids and, um, and it's up to your judgment as a parent too. Yes. And I will say, um, where I think, uh, things have changed a little bit is, um, the, a lot of the girls have very colorful language as well these days. I think yeah. another thing that's changed since we were growing up is how much more casual language has gotten in our culture. You know, whether from, we don't call people Mr. and Mrs. anymore. You call people by their first names. Like, like, so it's more universally casual yeah. um, and cussing, yeah. I think falls into that. I think you're right too. Yeah. I think, I think that's again, I think with a lot of these topics too, as it relates to our children's journey, right. And where, mm -hmm. and as far as their journey through maturity and just, it's a different experience. You know, I, I look at my, my 12 year old and her level of maturity mm -hmm. I mean, surpasses you know, my soon to be 15 year old's level of maturity when she was 12, it's, mm. it's almost like night and day. Huh. And, uh, and I think that applies to the, the generation and just, they do grow, they're growing, maturing, maybe a little bit faster with some of this stuff, which is why it maybe is a bit more casual yes. in a way that we might struggle 
yeah. to relate to, uh, which is okay too. It's okay if you can't 100% relate, just try to have that empathy and know that it's, it's happening. Right, right. And actually, I'm going to take, because that's a really good point. I'm going to take that one step farther, which is just know that you cannot 100% relate because one of the things that annoys, um, especially tweens and teens, <laughs> is the notion that we actually have an understanding of what they're going through. And life is, there. I mean, there's some parts of life in adolescence that are similar to the, yeah. some of the challenges of growth, but it's like on warp speed with way more world bad stuff going on and social media. And so a lot of the times I think we just have to acknowledge and we don't want to acknowledge as parents because we we don't like to be not in the know or not what's going on, but that's the reality just to understand for them to understand that you actually don't fully know what they're going through and that you would like to learn as much as you can from them if they're comfortable telling you, like try to open yeah. that, yeah. that place that they can feel safe to share some. Oh, totally. Because again, another just marvelous opportunity mm -hmm. to connect yes. and to learn. Yes. Awesome. Great question. All right. Question number four, the final question of today's episode. We are moving across the country this summer. How do I help my middle school son make friends when school is not in session? Important question. So moves can be tough for kids depending on especially what age and where in schooling they make the transition generally speaking actually i just talked we ran into a um some community friends out watching um the warriors game the other night go warriors and um it came up that he had moved between his sophomore and junior year and join the football team. And he said that was the best thing ever because he was just welcomed in with this group of guys in the summer that were the bridge for him when the school year started. That's an ideal situation. Yeah. I'm just saying um, from conceptually. And so I'm going to back, back out of that, which is if you can find any organized situations like a summer camp, YMCA, Boys and Girls Club, um, drama, theater, any um, local classes at the community center. You're just trying to get your child exposed to people so he or she can start to meet folks and get familiar with people in the community. So it just, it, it's, 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 a, it's a slow, it's a buildup. And, and so I just feel it's, it's usually going to be, unless you get lucky, of course, if there are some neighbors and you live in a, in a nice neighborhood where, when I say nice, I mean friendly neighborhood where people are out and talking, definitely helping your child um, meet some of the kids by meeting some of their parents. That is ideal as well. Um, that's not always out there. So that's where I say right. look for these organized activities, groups, um, camps, sports, where they can meet other folks in the neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenging age, I think, for young people to meet new people. It is. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think maybe some of that's a little different right now too. coming out of the pandemic. It's just getting back into school and figuring out how to kind of re-socialize. This also could be, you know, I, I, an ideal time 
to do this uh, as far as helping them connect with other people as they are reconnecting you know with the world and and so i think um yeah just look for those opportunities of interest for, mm-hmm. for your child and i think that uh the summertime activities are great for that you're not necessarily engaged sitting in a desk all day you might be out outside outdoors doing active active activities and just that's good for bonding mm-hmm. and, and i think also just being mindful of your child's experience of leaving. So some kids don't want to leave. They mm-hmm. have some great friends and they're really upset about leaving. And other kids um, have not had the greatest experience. And this is an opportunity to um, to start from scratch and make some good friends and not have anything coming with them um, yeah. from their past. And there's a lot of kids who are right in between. So I think the dialogue and the narrative about, um, how you talk about the move in a way that's very real for your middle schooler, as opposed to either, you know, like being overly, um, excited and optimistic when your child just isn't there. Because if your child is upset about the move, I think it's important to validate their experience of the loss, the sadness, the newness, the the worry about what's going to be. I think we've got to meet them where they are while we're trying to help them get acclimated and transition. That makes a lot of sense because let's say they are unhappy to leave. Mm-hmm. Then there's going to be, for lack of a better word, kind of a grieving process. They're grieving their, the move out of the house, their friends. and But on the plus side too, I think... And here's a different way of kind of thinking about it as far as maybe easing them into the new environment and getting out there, you know, encouraging them. And this will work for some and it won't work for others, but we've talked about it on the show in terms of your children engaging in like online gaming in front of their console with their friends that are so distant. It helps to kind of bridge that gap, but at the same time, be Mm -hmm. careful that, you know, that is not all that they want to do make sure that you know there's right. a, that you have the flexibility to allow them to continue to connect with their friends and then that might ease that transition a little bit because it won't be as much totally this cut totally and again this is another po- this is a positive aspect of technology um used to for people to be yeah. able to connect across the country and keep those relationships which are important and solid and trusting while making new ones that's uh, well, well said. And that uh, that wraps up the questions today. I think a lot of really great submissions. Mm-hmm. Love, you know, we know yeah. as both of us being parents, there is no lack of questions. No, no. matter how many years you've been a parent, no matter, no. you know, your vocation, our mm-hmm. kids will always uh, find a way to have us uh, scratching our heads at the end of the day. <laughs> This is true. And these questions represent the reality of life. We are all living as parents and all the multitudes of factors to uh, think about, which is why we love the questions. Um, Check out our previous episodes, which also have great questions. And uh, we continue, we being Phil and I and Laura, our producer and I alternating to give you our perspectives, our two cents, and to um, validate your lived experience because we get it we get it yes we do thank you for listening thank you for your questions follow us at 
at Parent Footprint Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. Visit us at our website, www.drdanpeters.com. As always, we appreciate your rating, your five-star reviews, and subscribing. And finally, remember to ask yourself the question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Mountain Spring High, composed and performed by Gabriel Lewis. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.